Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, this is part two of our 2017 Ig Nobels series. That's right. If you haven't listened to the first one, I recommend that you go back, at least listen to the first 20 minutes, because we set up the stage for what Ig Nobels are, how we've covered them in the past before, and what we're doing here today. This is really a continuation mm-hmm. of us observing the prizes. That being said, uh, if there was ever a multi-part uh, episode that you could just drop in at any point, it's yeah. this one. This is because a grab is, bag. Yeah, because basically we're just taking the 10 different winners for the 2017 Ig Nobel Prizes. We divvy them up, and we're each like taking the lead on a different study, discussing why it's cool, why it's funny, and exactly what the science is. In the last episode, we talked about liquid cats, cave bugs, and didgeridoo therapy, along with weird coffee mugs. And now we're going to get into even weirder stuff. Okay, so the first prize we're going to discuss today is the 2017 Economics Prize awarded to Matthew Rockloff and Nancy Greer, quote, for their experiments to see how contact with a live crocodile affects a person's willingness to gamble. <laughs> okay. This sounds like something out of a out of a James Bond film right here. Right, I'm, yeah. I'm imagining that this is like, I don't know, based in Louisiana or Florida or something where live crocodiles are a common sighting uh, and then you may go gambling afterwards. Based in Australia oh, where okay. you can yeah. gamble and you can handle saltwater crocodiles. All right, <laughs> yeah. So the paper is called Never Smile at a Crocodile. Betting on electronic gaming machines is intensified by reptile-induced arousal. I would say Whoa. actually there, we should put an asterisk <laughs> on the statement in that title there because that that's – Partially true, depending on what kind of gambler you are and some other things about you. Okay. It was published in the Journal of Gambling Studies in 2010. And so there are a lot of slot machine studies out there. You guys have a whole episode on that, right? Yeah, we do. We do. Mm -hmm. And I think we could do more. Robert and I have talked about doing episodes entirely on rat slot machine studies. (laughs) Uh, or, uh, I mean, there's just tons of research on slot machines, and there's a reason for this. Slot machines, or as the literature refers to them, electronic gaming machines, or EGMs, they're kind of a perfect predator. Yeah. They're, like, brilliantly designed to exploit vulnerabilities in human psychology and risk management behavior. Gambling with EGMs tends to produce this state of uh, what's known as autonomic arousal. You and I would just probably call this excitement, you know, mm-hmm. physiological sensation of excitement in the body that the brain tends to interpret. Sometimes in the case of gambling, interprets as a lucky streak, which keeps you gambling, and it leads to this vicious cycle where it's more and more arousing, and you just keep Keep wanting to bet more and more money. Autonomic arousal, not to be confused with reptile-induced arousal. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, reptiles could create a state of autonomic arousal. But right. yeah, not one in the same thing. One could lead to the other. So uh, I, I think EGMs are an interesting thing to study. And this kind of research really matters because they fit into a similar category uh, that, that I would put social media interface design in. This, this successful technology design that is actually better at its job than is good for us. Mm-hmm. What, what do y'all think about that with like social media interfaces? The, I, I would say it's a great success story in terms of designing technology, but success doesn't necessarily mean morally good or good for our lives. Well, I think we, 
when I think of a slot machine, I instantly think of like somebody that's kind of shackled there to the machine and they're just pushing buttons. Uh, and there's this idea that it's going to pay off for them. And then it, maybe it does pay off a little bit and then they keep going. Right. And with uh, with social media, you, you do see a similar situation. Someone has their phone out. They're constantly checking this feed or that feed, this social media app or, the, or another. Right. And the win in this case, I guess, would be somebody contacting them directly or yeah. some sort of a response. How to many a, likes did I get on my yeah. tweet? Yeah. Or yeah. You, might even, you might even have a real win. You could have a meaningful interaction with somebody you care about on sure. social media mm-hmm. or you might come across an interesting article that you're glad you read. Those are the little wins, but maybe it just keeps you playing after yeah. that. We seeking discussed this more a wins. little on our uh, Is Social Media Making Us Crazy episode from last year. And I think, yeah, if I remember correctly, the literature basically assumes and is they're still looking into this, of course, that like the same parts of our brain that are lit up by gambling are lit up by social media. I think I think that's a highly successful and correct analogy. Uh, so for social media interfaces that the job they're trying to achieve generally is maximizing time on site. They want to keep you on that platform as long as possible and keep you looking at stuff and clicking on ads and all that. Is that why we do those hour long Facebook lives every Friday? I don't. Well, that's why <laughs> Facebook wants us doing yeah, those yes, things. It is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know what our reason is. Maybe we're just slaves plug, to the machine. Plug for our Facebook Lives. But well, if you didn't know that, we do that every Friday. Well, I think basically, yeah, the machine says you need to do this. Yeah. And we basically turned it around and said, okay, we'll do it. But if we're, if we're going to do Let's it, we're going to make it fun. Right. Yeah. We'll change it from the inside. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're doing. We're changing the machine, man. But the electronic gaming machines, I would put them in the same category. But instead, what they're seeking is not maximizing time on site, but maximizing time on machine. Because when they maximize time on machine, this tends toward infinity of losses for the player. It leads to playing to extinction. This is yes. an industry term. Basically, the machine getting all your cash and then making you come back to play again when you've got more. Yeah, draining oh, wow. the host dry of its precious blood. Uh, so unless you want to make gambling illegal or something, uh, one of the best defenses against this type of machine is for independent researchers to study the psychology of gaming, basically to understand how these machines exploit our brains so we can build up defense behaviors that people could employ independently to resist the machines, or maybe so you could impose regulations on what types of things these machines can do. Well, like one of the issues that we got into uh, before was what happens when a machine is speaking to you in a human voice or using uh, other kind of anthropomorphic uh, forms. Like if if you were to to pass a law that says, look, you can have slot machines, but they can't look like beautiful women. They can't look like cartoon characters. That's right. They can't be a cowboy that says, howdy, partner, put coins in me. Yeah. And that is actually a meaningful thing because studies have shown that you might spend more money in a slot machine that seems more humanoid and less mechanical. So there are tons of studies like this. There's just a prolific slot machine research. This is one example that is maybe the weirdest one I've ever come across, but I like <laughs> it. So Rockloff and Greer decided to study this strange condition. What happens when you have the opportunity to gamble on an EGM after you've just held a saltwater crocodile? <laughs> oh, boy. The, so the subjects are tourists at the Kurana Saltwater Crocodile Farm in Kuwanga, Queensland, Australia. Okay. It was 103 subjects, 41 of them female. Uh, ages 18 to 66. And here's the experiment. 
under two different conditions, subjects would be given money. They'll give you 20 bucks. And then they ask you to play a laptop simulated EGM, sort of a slot machine simulator written in Visual Basic on a laptop computer where you would get to gamble with the money they just gave you. And the two different conditions were this. You could either play this game right before you walk into the crocodile farm or right after you have cradled a one-meter-long saltwater crocodile in your hands. So there are some independent variables going into this, right? You've got, obviously, the control condition and the test condition. Did you just walk in, or have you handled a crocodile? And so that is supposed to correspond to your level of arousal. They did a galvanic skin conductance test to to sort of check this and see, okay, were people actually showing physiological signs of arousal? And they determined, yeah, people who held crocodiles were physiologically aroused. But the other independent variables would be problem gaming status, like do do you have any of the risk factors for being a problem gambler, or affective state. Are you having negative feelings right now? And so they'd establish that by a questionnaire uh, that they administer at the time of the test, like are, are you having emotions that we'd usually classify as negative affect or positive affect? Okay. And then the dependent variables, this is what they were seeing was was coming out from those variables was bet size, how much you bet speed of betting, how fast you bet, and final payouts, like what what's your, your bottom line at the end of the game. And the results they found were that compared to people in the control group, holding a crocodile could affect problem gamblers in a couple of different ways. If you held a crocodile and had negative emotions, you actually placed lower than average bets on the EGM. So if you're somebody who's at risk for problem gambling – they hand you a crocodile and you don't like it and you have negative emotions, you'll actually – it will tamp down your problem gambling behaviors. You're huh. less likely to spend more. Interesting. But if you are a problem gambler or have these you know risk factors for problem gambling and you hold a crocodile and you don't have negative feelings about it, you actually place much higher than average bets on the EGM. Sure. Oh, that's wow. what I imagined would happen, that there's some kind of like I, I held this dangerous animal and everything turned out OK. So now I'm willing to take – uh, more risks. Well, th- so here's how the researchers interpreted it. I'll see what you guys think about this. Okay. The way they interpreted it is they're, they're going on what's known as uh, the two-factor model of affective states. So the way they think affective states tend to happen is that we first of all experience physiological arousal. Like there are feelings in the body that tell you something of emotional significance is happening. Mm -hmm. And then secondary to that, you cognitively think about it and give it some kind of meaning or significance or cause. So what would happen, say, if um, you suddenly a car is driving head on at you in the highways, first you have the feelings in your body. There's some kind of arousal Mm -hmm. and then you use your sense data and your thoughts to kind of say, okay, here's why that's happening. I'm afraid because a car is coming at me. Um, and so the, what that means, though, is that these, the feelings of arousal in the body are not necessarily linked to their actual causes. It's just something that we sort of figure out secondary to having the feeling. Yeah. And so the way that might work in a gambler is if you do something dangerous or something arousing, like holding a dangerous reptile – you can you get this physiological sense of arousal, but the gambler who doesn't have fear emotions really about that animal or any other kind of negative emotions can just interpret that free-floating arousal as a lucky streak. Oh, wow. So it's like I'm pumped up. 
yeah. by, by what just happened, and I'm that means I'm good to go. Let's, right. Let's gamble. I'm I just held a crocodile. I'm ready to drop some cash. Yeah, it's content content free arousal that you can interpret in any schema you want. And for the problem gambler, that schema may very well be the feeling of luckiness or the huh. feeling of being on a roll. So I got to ask you then, how well do you think Kenny Rogers, the gambler, <laughs> would do based on his crocodile experience? Was maybe here's the thing. He maybe he was talking about a crocodile. You've yeah. got to know when to hold the crocodile and when to run. Oh, yeah. see, that would actually be more specific. I've got no one issues. to hold them. <laughs> I've got issues with Kenny Rogers, the gambler. Who doesn't? Because <laughs> I think it fits into this category of advice that is not actually specific enough to matter. <laughs> There, there's tons of advice like that out in the world. You'll read these, you know, inspirational quotes. People have whole books like this where they offer advice, but the advice is actually completely generic. It's essentially like telling somebody, you should figure out what the right thing to do is. It's like a fortune cookie. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the, in the song, it's, you've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. That's not advice. Advice would be telling me <laughs> what to judge that on. Like, how should I know when to hold them? Do you, uh, this is completely an aside, but if you want some fun, Look up the uh, video of him performing that song on the Muppet Show in the eighties. It's pretty great. <laughs> now he does he does give us some advice. You never count your money uh, while you're sitting at the table. That okay, I'll give yeah. him that. That is specific advice. I'll take that. But you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. That's not advice. <laughs> That's just generic fortune teller stuff. But anyway, I, I wanted to come back to the study because there are some asterisks we should put on this. Number one is uh, I want to clarify that this only seemed to be the case for problem gamblers. So like holding the crocodile just for normal people who do, who did not have these risk factors for being a problem gambler did not seem to intensify betting. And, uh, like these would be people for whom gambling is not a novel experience, but maybe holding a crocodile is. Whereas for, for me, holding a crocodile is a novel experience as is uh, using a slot machine. Right. So okay. you, you probably would not place higher bets or, or have intensified gambling or reward-seeking behaviors after holding a crocodile. Right. Or likewise, somebody who had a strict rule like, yeah, I, I play the slot machines when I go to the casino, but I only spend $5. Right. And once that's gone, I'm done, and I never break that rule. Right. Yeah. So people who who don't exhibit these behaviors, this doesn't apply to them. It does seem to apply to people who are at risk for problem gambling. But there is a limitation to the study, essentially, that they did not have a lot of people in their sample group who showed problem gambling behaviors or, or risk factors. So one thing would be that they should probably try to replicate this to have more confidence in the in the result with uh, a larger sample group that has more problem gamblers in it just to make sure that they're getting a real effect and this isn't just noise. Now, remember also the thing is that even among the problem gamblers, it was only when you don't have any negative moods or negative feelings about holding the crocodile that it leads to these intensified behaviors. If you have these negative moods you report, it actually kind of seems to moderate your gambling behavior. And uh, so that sets up this quote I want to read from the paper, quote, in some low intensity negative moods, such as boredom or mild anxiety, contribute to large bets among at-risk players, whereas high autonomic arousal without negative moods also produces relatively large wagers. Taken together, the results suggest that betting among at-risk players may be motivated both by attempts to alleviate low-arousal dysphoric moods and by high-arousal-induced positive expectations of winning money. Yeah, totally. This lines up with the social media thing as well, I yeah. think. Yeah, that so, makes sense. So it's like when, you, when you're a problem gambler and you participate in these gambling behaviors, it seems you may be trying to counteract 
basically like low level unpleasantness yeah. mm-hmm. and seeking high arousal, high reward, pleas- uh, you know, high, high pleasure interactions. Right. But if you're like absolutely in the pits emotionally, you're probably not going to be likely to gamble as much as that. Right. The, the person who's just sort of low level unhappy. Right. A little bit anxious, a little bit bored. That's the target. Sure. Zone. Yeah. So what's the what, what's the overall takeaway from this? Is there any kind of crocodile based regulation that might be uh, employed to help problem gamblers? Well, I wouldn't say crocodile based, but I mean, I think it studies like this actually do matter. Like th- this is the kind of thing that can help us understand the psychological states that lead to problem gambling and can help people either individually can help people come up with strategies to avoid problem gambling behaviors if they know like, OK, Here's the state I'm in when I'm vulnerable. I know when I'm in that state, I should, uh, you know, not be around electronic gaming machines or something like that. Like you can devise behaviors to protect yourself mm-hmm. uh, from your own impulses or you could also devise regulations on society. Like if we find out that in general people are just much more uh, susceptible to electronic gaming machines under certain psychological Conditions, you could try to keep gaming machines from being around in places where you would expect people to be in those conditions. Okay. Or you end up, you end up having just, uh, like some sort of a, a BS question that pops up on the screen. Uh, please rate your depression level. And if right. you, and if you, and if you rate it, uh, appropriately, then it won't let you play. Right. And then you do it again and you just click the number that's required. Right. It's like, like having an age gate on a machine. Guys, they have some kind like of capitalism test. To me. <laughs> <laughs> they have a test in the machine to see if you, okay, are you having kind of like uh, no, no real strong negative emotions, but experiencing high arousal? I don't mm. know how you test for that, yeah. but. But if you detect that, it's like you better not gamble right now. I mean, if you wanted to do it physiologically, you could actually do a galvanic skin conductance test. You know, like yeah. you, you could test for arousal with a physical test and not a questionnaire. Yeah, I could see that you like put your arm into a cuff of some sort and it tested yeah. out. Yeah, it's like you're too aroused. You can't can't play right now. Hmm. But then you come back to the again to the just the question: How much energy, how much effort, and how much design are slot machine makers going to be willing to put into? you know, basically, basically protecting the host organism. Oh, well, of course. I mean, when we did our last slot machine episode, we had somebody write in who worked for a gaming design company mm-hmm. and, and they were like, you know, I, I think you, you were a little too harsh on us. You were a little too negative about slot machines. I, you know, I, I don't want to demonize them too much because I can understand like under plenty of conditions, they might just be a fun thing people do. Mm-hmm. Like if they've got certain limits on how much they bet, it might just be a cool recreational activity. I don't have a problem with that, but I think we should recognize that cer- certain people have conditions that make them vulnerable to this and that can be incredibly destructive in their lives. Well, I think one of the things that we observed in that episode is that the origins of the slot machine were very mundane and fun. It was about, uh, administering a prize uh, in, in a simple game, not unlike you know, like a trivia machine or something in, in bars today. But the machine, as machines do, uh, they evolved. They evolved. They took on more advanced forms. They were designed to take on more advanced forms. They became better and better at uh, at carrying out their their key bit of programming, yeah. which <laughs> was you know drain the sucker of his coin. The original Facebook algorithm. Have you guys noticed this trend in video games lately when you're in like an immersive world video game that there is almost always a gambling component to it? Oh, like yeah. if you're in like Skyrim, you can gamble. If you're in Red Dead Redemption, you can gamble. 
uh, I'm trying to remember what the most recent one. Oh, The Witcher. I was playing one of those Witcher games. It's like everywhere you go, you can sit down and gamble. I would say that the, the games like that incorporate gambling elements even outside of the gaming within the gaming thing. So in a lot yeah. of these games, you can walk up to a slot machine and play it or you can play cards. But also when you're in the world, there are variable reward payouts where, yeah. for example, if you're – Achievements. Yeah, yeah. You know, you might – kill certain enemies or something and they've got goodies they give you when yeah. you loot them and you notice you don't get the same thing every time oh, and it's yeah. not guaranteed it's variable payouts just like a slot machine mm-hmm. and the variable payouts are a psychological hack the variable payouts make us think like oh it could be really big next time i'm going to keep doing it that's what leads to grinding in video games yeah. yeah yeah i think i wonder though if there's something about the actual placing of gambling into those games that psychologically gets players to play longer. Yeah, I think that could very well be. All right. On that note, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to jump into the Cognition Prize. All right, we're back. Cognition, you say? What do we got here? We have a paper titled, Is That Me or My Twin? Lack of Self-Face Recognition Advantage in Identical Twins. Uh, I saw this. And as we were doing the research for this yesterday, a headline popped up that was related to this. Mm-hmm. Apparently, uh, you know, when your phone does facial recognition as a way to unlock, like yeah. as, as a password, it has trouble with identical twins. Huh. Yeah. So I wonder if what you're about to reveal to us is related. In a way. In a way. So this is a paper that uh, came out in 2015. And it's from a uh, an Italian and Spanish team, and it was published in PLOS One. It uh, before we get into it, though, I, I do want to just touch basically on the idea of identical twins. And uh, we've had some episodes in the past that have dealt with twins a little bit, but I don't know. I, I can't remember if we've done a deep dive. I know that we have some identical twins out there listening to the show. I know that we have parents of identical twins, siblings of identical twins, etc. For a lot of us, though. Our main point of reference for identical twins ends up being fiction. Because how many of example, <laughs> how many examples can you think of, of like weird twins or twins with a paranormal link? Yeah, it's played up for the uncanniness. I mean, I, they, they push it to creepy links and things like The Shining or Dead Ringers. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, and I say this, I, I mean, I have written stories about creepy twins before, uh, because they, they, it does become a useful way of examining yourself, examining identity, uh, at least if you're an outsider, if you're not an identical twin. Likewise, I'm glad you mentioned Dead Ringers because you also see it used over and over again in films. Sometimes it feels like just pure actor or director vanity. Like, let's have this actor play two characters. Why right. have one James Franco when you can have two James Francos playing slightly <laughs> right. different characters? Is there a James Franco twin it's movie? It's in The Deuce. The Deuce. The, the oh. TV oh. show The Deuce. Deuce. Yeah. He okay. plays two. Yeah. Yeah, I immediately uh, thought of that that recent uh, movie about the Cray Brothers legend, where Tom Hardy plays both the. Cray oh Brothers. yeah, he plays he plays identical twins. Yeah. Uh, there was the the recent uh, Fargo uh, season. Oh yeah, where had identical right. twins played by the same actor. It it's done so many times that it you, it, you get tired of it after a while, unless yeah. there's a really compelling reason to have identical twins played by a single actor. Mm. I just got to throw in that one of my favorite words in all of science is the word for identical twins, the monozygotic twin. Yeah, the monozygotic twin. It it is utilized uh, in this paper quite a bit. Now, uh, on top of it, so basically it comes down to the idea that for us non-twins, 
Identical twins are a way to unravel ourselves, they perplex us, and they toy with our sense of self-perception. And as uh, the researchers on this uh, this paper, this 2015 paper, point out, science has generally overlooked the conundrum of self-facial recognition in identical twins. We have a mm. lot of twin studies out there, but there hasn't been a lot of papers that have looked at what happens when an identical twin looks at a photograph or right. an image, a representation of their own face. Do they experience some kind of cognitive dissonance? Yeah. Okay. Because consider, for, for, the, for the rest of us, for those of, of us who are not identical twins, um, self-facial recognition is, is a major thing. And it may be a cognitive prerequisite for theory of mind, our ability to imagine the mind state of others. Because just think of all the times you've looked in a mirror or you've taken a selfie or you've looked at a picture of yourself and you think, ah, who's that handsome devil? You know? <laughs> and then you answer that question. You, you tell yourself who that handsome devil it's is. Me. Yeah. Why, why is he making a smile like that? What's yeah. that twinkle in his eyes? Um, it's the evil twin. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm painting it in, in, in shades of vanity here, but there's a, there's a basic cognitive process that's going on yeah. uh, when you do that. You are identifying yourself and thinking about who you are. Well, I mean, people respond in hilarious, obsessive ways to their own reflection when you notice it. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, there's a reason that a lot of places will put mirrors near elevators where people need to wait for things. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, people just – time flies when you're looking in a mirror. You can obsessively gaze into this image. Yeah. Right, rather than worry about the people that are next to you in the elevator. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And there's a, but there's a similar uh, cognitive uh, process going on when you look at any face. You look at a loved one's face. You look at a stranger's face. There's still this theory of mind exercise that's going on in which you're saying, "Who is that handsome devil?" Or who is that person with a you know sombrero on? I, you know, whatever the case may be, <laughs> you're looking at the face and you're trying to figure out who they are, at least insofar as it relates to you. Okay. I've had like the opposite experience with this, and I don't want to take us too far off track, but when I used to ride the train, the the uh, windows on the train were curved in such a way that when you saw your own reflection in it, your face was distorted a little mm. bit. And it would look like my forehead had ridges or something or like it was just – it's kind of like a funhouse mirror. And Klingon I, Christian. Yeah, a Klingon. That was exactly what it looked <laughs> like to me. Yeah. And uh, it, it was fascinating. I would sit there and look at it for for the whole ride and just kind of wonder like what if I actually did look like that you know so there is a a weird sort of obsessiveness with our own uh reflection but also like a, just a slight variation on it yeah i mean i think you see this in in skype calls uh, oh yeah and, and facetime calls where Everyone's looking at their own picture instead of the camera. Uh-huh. Or maybe they're looking at other people's pictures. I notice it with my son because he's just uh, – when, when I put him on FaceTime calls with relatives, he's just captivated by the own little – the little version of his own face. Right. And he's not even thinking about the call, much less someone on the other line. <laughs> <laughs> and this underlines a basic reality. Uh, our own face grabs and retains attention longer than any other face out there. Uh, you know, loved one, stranger, etc. And this, according to the researchers, occurs with both upright and inverted faces. So we process upright faces faster, usually, uh, but we also have this similar uh, uh, process that goes on when the, the face is upside down. Uh-huh. In fact, our ability to recognize our own face holds true even in cases of severe face blindness, except in cases of just really catastrophic neurological or psychiatric disorder. Another fun word, the term there, I guess, would be autoprosopagnosia. Yes. Prosopagnosia is face blindness. 
Yes. So even in in cases uh, of of severe face blindness, again, your own face is still going to um, have a special place in uh, in in facial recognition. Right. Okay. But there is a. So what we're getting at here is with the twins in particular, they lack the ability to recognize their own face in these. These twins that have a similar face to them? Well, I mean, basically it comes comes down to the fact that it's going to mess with this system because uh-huh. the, 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 the basic fact here is that if you have an identical twin, then looking at your own face, looking at a representation of your own face, it's not – instantly going to be your face. It yeah. could be your twin's face. Sure. And oh, and, okay. And so yeah. we're lo- looking at this to see, like, what's different with our identical twins and then what this reveals about our own, uh, about everyone else's facial recognition process. Gotcha. Okay. Now, there are a few other factors that you have to take into account. So uh, self-face processing is a, a right hemisphere um, uh, exercise, and it's impaired in individuals with schizotypal traits. Uh, also, extroverts who typically have better social skills, they recognize a higher number of faces than introverts. Hmm. Lower face recognition is associated with increased social phobia. Uh, so uh, in all of this, personality plays a role in facial recognition as well, twin or not. So this is good because it gives me uh, a reason to explain to my wife why I mix up like actors and actresses all the time. Because she's like, you just think everybody looks alike. And Well, no, it's because actually uh, I have lower face recognition because of my increased social phobia. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so given all of, of what we've discussed so far uh, – Monozygotic twins, they, they, they pose an interesting exception to the uniqueness of the self-face. Uh, because, again, when we see a representation of our own face, we instantly know who that is. There's no room for doubt. And the idea here with an identical twin, there's going to be at least a little room for doubt. Uh, you know, granted, if one has a, an evil goatee or something, it's going to throw things out the window a bit. Right. But uh, for the most part... Uh, this is this is interesting to look at because it turns things on its on, their, on its head a little bit. Okay, so past predictions uh, have been made related to this that, uh, that twins might have trouble with self identification as they identify more as a duo. Uh, also, identical twins might sometimes mistake photos of their twin or their self. That's been the, the previous thinking on this. Also, another past study indicated that while humans can usually identify themselves in a mirror by age two. Uh, you, th- there have been cases where two-year-old twins discriminate their own faces from the face of their co-twins only if exposed to the facial stimuli for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. So okay. there might be a delay, at least. And studies have looked at young twins and their ability to work out uh, th- these faces. But prior to this study, no one had really looked at the ability of adult twins to tell their faces apart. Okay, so what do we find out? All right, well... Basically, the, the overall aim of the paper, according to them, is, quote, in the light of these uh, premises, the main objective of the present study was to examine at both configural, that's based on the whole face, and featural, that's based on details of the face, processing levels, whether despite their physical similarity, twins would be better at recognizing their own face compared to their co-twin faces. So what they did is they presented groups of twins with upright and inverted images of their faces, those of a twin, and a control image of a non-twin, so just some other person. Okay. They used 10 monozygonic, right-handed, gender-balanced, healthy twin couples. That's the the exact wording from the paper. And 10 right-handed, gender-balanced, healthy controls. All white Caucasians in Rome, where uh, where the study was held, and the control participants 
the non-twins used in the study for balance, they were matched with sex-matched close friends or relatives, all people they'd known at least three years. So there'd be a, a level of familiarity. Okay. This resulted in two days of tests. First, they did personality tests. Then they did the facial tests. And these were the results. Identical twins, they said, seemed to lack the self-identification advantage. However, the absence of the self-advantage depends on how much the twins report that they physically resemble each other. Okay, so adult twins can't pick themselves out of a lineup as easily as most adults can. But this is mitigated by whether they look all that much like their identical twin. Right. Yeah. I want to drive home that it is – we are not saying that twins can't tell each other apart in the right. mirror. Uh, but that there is – Not a, as easily. Not as, basically, yeah. Not as easily. Yeah. Uh, it also depends on their anxious and avoidant attachment style. And they found out that, quote, self and co-twin faces share very similar featural, configural, and matching processes but differ with respect to the higher order stages of fa- face processing. So – this is a study uh, – honestly, there's so many studies uh, that the Ig Nobel covers that I'm like, yeah, that's – of course that the Ig Nobels chose that one. Or yeah. there are studies that come out and you're like, oh, I can't wait till they, they feature this one. They give this one an Ig Nobel Prize. I, I honestly didn't see what was that funny about this one. It's, right, yeah. Yeah, I think this, it's this interesting. Seems like, yeah. it, right, exactly. I guess maybe it's the idea of looking at your own face upside down. I, again, like if we had watched the ceremony this year, I imagine they would have done some kind of visual gag or whatever. Yeah. You know, related to this specific but study. But it, it doesn't seem to have an inherent gag quality to it. There's no, no crocodile being held <laughs> prior to using a gambling machine. There's, no liquid cats. Yeah, so it's I, – I have trouble figuring – I mean, I'm glad they they highlighted it. It's a case where, yeah, it's a cool study and I'm glad more eyes are on it uh, because it does it is important. Uh, the take-home here is, again, not that twins are freaky or anything. Rather, we're looking at a slight tweaking of the basic visual safe, uh, self-face recognition, and it illuminates what's going on in all of us. Mm. Now, the researchers also argue that their findings match up with the self-referent phenotype matching theory that we recognize our kin by implicitly or explicitly comparing the similarity of other people's appearance to our own. So that's, that's another interesting. You know, potential take-up from the, uh, from the study. And again, I know we have some identical twins out there. We have parents of identical twins, family members, and friends of identical twins. Uh, we would obviously love to hear from all of you about this particular paper. And we'd like to hear from evil twins as well. Yeah, evil twins, jump in. All right, let's take one more break. And when we get back, I'm going to talk to you guys about big years. Ooh. All right, we're back. This potato has big ears. Oh, that's interesting <laughs> that you went there. So there is actually a variety of slang around the world for talking about big ears. Yeah. Whether it's potatoes. Wait, really? Or, yeah. Well, no, but in the UK, uh, they are sometimes called bat ears. I had not heard that before. Hmm. Or, huh. or wingnut, which I thought wingnut was a completely different thing. I assume that this is talking about big ears on humans, not on other animals. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Hindus seem to find big ears desirable because of comparisons to the elephant god Ganesha. Hmm. Uh, the French compare big ears to cabbage. Hmm. Hungarians compare them to donkey ears and the Polish compare them to pig ears. Now, this is interesting. The Chinese believe that long ears predict prosperity and longevity. And this is the most important to this paper that I'm about to present to you and its purposes. I also want to say all of those like uh, statements about various societies around the world, I didn't look that up. That came out of this original paper here. This is yet another Ig Nobel winner. It is the Anatomy Prize winner 
for the article, Why Do Old Men Have Big Ears? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Because now, it's true, right? You, it turns out it true. is true, but it's uh, this is why it's funny, right? The idea is that it's one of these things that we all assume, but it does turn out that there's there's some reality to it. They've done lots of measurements, so let's get into it. I, I'm trying to picture pig ears, and I can't. What do pig ears look like? Oh, they're they're big and flop. Well, sometimes they're floppy. It depends on the pig. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they're kind of like dog ears. They're kind of like pit bull ears. Yeah, yeah my dog's but, but ears not are like, like basset hound ears. Or yeah, 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 yeah. Um. So the idea for this paper actually came about this way. Nineteen members of the Thames faculty of the Royal College of General Practitioners were just sitting around brainstorming. And the first question that came up to them was, why do old men have big ears? (laughs) And then they realized they were like, well, wait a minute. Actually, we need to confirm that old men's ears are bigger and they get bigger in the first place. So this study was conducted by Dr. James A. Heathcott. And uh, he was a general practitioner in Bromley at the time. This is in the 90s. The paper was published in 1995. So they asked routine patients who were coming in for surgery consultations if it was okay if they measured their ears as part of this research along with it. (laughs) And the group was 30-plus years old from either sex and uh, from any racial group that came in. Interestingly, none refused. Everybody was like, cool, measure my ears. This sounds fun. And they recorded this along with the patient's age. And at this time, they got 206 people to participate. And the study showed that as these participants got older, their ears grew on an average of 0.22 millimeters a year. What the study didn't explain is why ears keep growing when the rest of the body stops. That seems to be odd, right? The thing about this study is it doesn't explain another thing. What if you're a taller person and uh, like Robert, Robert is taller than I am. Robert's taller than Joe. So what if Robert has longer ears simply because he's taller? Yeah. And then as he gets older, you know, so there's some discrepancies that they didn't really fill in here. You know what they say, long legs, big ears. Yeah, and well, and plus, when you get older, you're going to be more stooped over, whereas the yeah. ears are not going to get stooped over. It's good. So I could see that being the illusion of like, oh, this, this old person, they're shrinking, except for their ears, which there's, there's no limit in sight. Yeah. Uh, and they also didn't answer, for instance, like, all of the elderly people that they checked their ears, they were all English because they're all in this one small spot. So mm-hmm. they, the, it hadn't, they didn't really replicate it across cultures or ethnicities, mm-hmm. right? So this study was actually replicated in Japan in 1996 and they found the same thing. Yes, ear length still correlates with age even when it is corrected for height. Mm-hmm. But still there's all these alternative interpretations that remain. So for instance, are People who are young now, when they turn old, are they also going to see their ears age in the same way? Is ear length changing and getting bigger as you get older? Is it environmental? And if it's environmental, what could be responsible for big ears? One of the questions was literally the idea that that people who were older at the time that they were doing this study, when they were younger, it was more common for their parents to box or scrub their children's ears. So they thought, well, maybe that could have affected it. I mean, my guess on the size would just be flesh drooping effects. Yeah, or something to, related to the way the ear grows, like the inner, uh, 
the, the inner portions of the ear kind of growing out. Yeah. Is the ear like a tree? Like every year it gets a new ring? Yeah. I mean, maybe that's how aliens will categorize human captives. That they, <laughs> all right, measure the ear, see how old this one is. But Heathcott didn't really account for any of that in his study. So I turned to another uh, analysis of this. Because the study is over 20 years old, I looked at Alice Shirrell Caswell's research on this for improbable research. So oh. the organization that puts out the Ig Nobels. So this is where it came about from. So Alice addresses in her paper, first of all, the original study is very patriarchal because it focuses on men. Now, that's only in the title. She acknowledges that the Japanese and subsequent German studies confirm that old women have big ears, too. But I do want to point out that is just poor phrasing of the British study. It was clear that they didn't discriminate on participants based on gender. I think they were just using the old men term jokingly because, because that was what people have been talking about. Yeah. The old I, men. They had based the, the entire study on this joke. On comment. this hook. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now the German study was conducted in 2007 and they used photos instead of measuring like real ears. I imagine they must have been to scale these photos. They, they used uh, photos of 1,448 ears and they measured them in 15 different ways and they found that female ears show a lesser increase than those of men. So, mm. so far across these three studies, we've learned that yes, people's ears grow as they get older. Uh, yes, women's ears also grow along with men's ears, but that uh, it seems like at least in the German study that female ears have lesser increase. So that is really the gist of all of these studies. I think they're awarding an older study, you know, because uh, Alice came along and was like, hey, wait a minute, this deserves a second look. Now, why is it funny? Well, because of the whole hook of the whole old men have big ears thing. We all just assume that to be true. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever thought you'd sit down and actually measure people's ears with a ruler or like <laughs> a, uh, what do you call it, like a tape measure or something like that, right? But it does seem to be actually important. And the reason why there's still questions to be answered we still don't know why ears keep going when the rest of the body stops, right? Mm -hmm. And then the gender difference in the rate of growth seems like that's it's something important as well, especially in terms of just understanding human biology and anatomy. Huh. Well, you know, it also you have to wonder too about uh, earrings and piercings and various, you know, which is gonna it's gonna vary from culture to culture, right? But uh, in many cases, you're gonna have a more females than uh, males using the piercings That's or the true, earrings. Yeah. And is that going to increase length of, of lobe? And I think of about like my friends in the punk scene who got like lots of earrings and got like big gauges placed in their lobes mm -hmm. and how their ears look now too. Yeah. That could be an effect as well. So there you go with some environmental possibilities. I don't know about boxing or scrubbing though. Yeah. So we're potentially looking though at – sort of accidental body modification of the human ear, yeah. sort of like cultural long-term modification, or we're looking at um, at some sort of uh, you know, gender dimorphism of, of Homo sapiens where men end up having longer ears over time. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with Joe. I mean, I, I haven't done the research, but I would assume that it's similar to like why you get bags under your eyes, right? Like over time, the um, – fascia underneath your mm -hmm. skin just loosens and the you know it droops basically and so the, i think the ears are probably the same like the cartilage around the ears stick i would imagine stays the same but the 
the other stuff starts drooping down. Yeah. yeah. All right. So there you have it. We've covered in this episode cr- the use of uh, saltwater crocodiles uh, on problem gamblers. We've looked at facial recognition in twins, and then the size of old man ears. So if you have any anecdotes or maybe some of your own research to share with us on these topics, you can find us on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Tumblr, and we're on Instagram. We've also got our fantastic Facebook discussion group, Yeah, the discussion module. You can find it on our Facebook page. That's where uh, fans of the show hang out, interact, talk about recent episodes, or sometimes share uh, potential topics with us. Yeah. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you want to answer the question, do your ears hang low? Do they wobble to and fro? We want to know about that and how it relates to this earlobe study uh, that uh, Christian's been discussing. You can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank <laughs> you.